This next one is on the layout. And this is really important. This is a subject I really like, and it's one of the first things I teach anybody who calls me up and says, oh, I want to put in a garden. Okay, the layout's important, okay? You're going to set yourself up for success or set yourself up for failure. If you're doing three acres or less, and when, when I remember I asked you, a lot of you guys were more than three acres, and, and this is not going to really work for you. You're going to have to use a tractor. This layout lesson is really for people that have a tiller or, you know, like a, uh, like a craftsman tiller or for uh, who's got a BCS. Remember the BCS? Uh, one of those catalogs over there has a BCS tiller, which is a, it's, a, it's like a tiller, but it has a PTO, and you can put lots of attachments on it. And uh, you can put a tiller on there, you can put a mower on there, and uh, lots of things. And uh, you can do three acres or less with that. And that's a good enough for one family or one person to handle three acres. And you can make money with that. So if you're a tractor farmer, we want to do more than that. This, you're going to have to do something. You're going to be able to pick, to pick up some things from this, but it's basically geared to a person with three acres or less, and, and it has a BCS. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm preaching permanent beds and permanent walkways, which you can do with a tiller-type instrument or a two-wheel tractor. You can't really do it with a tractor, okay? They don't have... They need to design some equipment where you could do it with a tractor, but they just don't have it designed yet. So, uh, you can't get that are split. You can? Yeah. Well, usually the, pro the problem is, well, we get to it. All right. Okay, everybody ready to go? This is called layout. Proverbs uh, 24, 27 says, prepare thy work without and make, a fit, make it fit for yourself in the field. And the key word, afterwards, build your house. How many people do that? Not many. People usually build the house. Most people build their house first, and then maybe 10 years, 20 years down the road, they think they'll put in a garden. Uh, all right, I'm going to bring this a little closer to home. Here's a, I got this out of an Advent uh, website. Here's their breaking ground for a new church. They people, we, we build lots of houses of worship, but no fields attached to feed the house. Everybody wants to build a church. Everybody wants to put up a building. Nobody wants to put it in the field to support it. Okay? So, and that's, uh, I don't know what it is about us human beings. We, can't, we tend to get all excited about buildings. But farms, we, want, we don't really want to know. You know, we just go to the store. It's a lot easier, you know. Uh, but this, we really need, I think a church, I think every church should have a space for farm. Uh, eight laws of health. We all know them. New start. I like the new start one because it's just like one word except for the last one. Uh, this is Daniel, the guy who trained me. We already saw that picture. Now, which do you think, now he's not Adventist, but which do you think supports our eight laws of health? This picture or this picture? If we're eating strawberries out of this or we're eating strawberries out of that, and does our health message need to address how it's grown? And does it affect our... And, I, and I'm going to say the way it's grown affects our health. And we don't have much of a health message without a farm message to go with it. Uh, how much production can one person handle? This is Elliot Coleman again. He's wrote extensively on these kind of things because he likes to promote independent farms. Uh, I got to, see me, uh, see me, well, this has got a website. I want to pull up a, a YouTube video of him doing a talk. 
on this after the class, if we got time. And uh, he does a great little 15-minute segment. It's some big you know, talk he's doing with other people. And he talks about uh, the small organic farm and how it's something we need in our society. It's not just some little hobby you know, for you know, centrics or whatever. Anyways, how much can one person handle? Five acres, this is Elliot Coleman talking, not Scott Arrington, and I agree with this. Uh, I, I actually, I think he's probably a little more, I mean, I, I say a little less, but it says five acres is the optimum size because it is about as much land as a couple or small family can manage, okay? Uh, effectively manage a farm operation. I believe there is a person to land area ratio that cannot be exceeded. And the upper limit, and I say this would be the upper limit, I think my upper limit would be a little bit lower, is uh, usually one, one person can manage about two and a half acres. That seems a bit, a uh, bit, what is the word, a bit industrious to me or a bit, I think I would be taxed to handle an acre and a half, one person. But he says two and a half. Uh, is more than sufficient land to grow a year's worth of vegetables for a hundred people. I mean, you know, you... They did, uh, I don't want to get sidetracked too much here, but they did studies. And in World War II, when Germany went and occupied Norway, uh, the Germans were taking all the beef for themselves. And the Norwegians were left just to eat grain for that five-year period. And heart disease was climbing in Norway up until that time because, you know, the use of meat products was growing. And then when the Germans took all the beef, their incidence of heart disease went down. I think this is, uh, you look at the a video, uh, Forks Over Knives, anybody seen that one? It's in there too. I, I'd heard it before that, but it's in there too. And, and then when, after the war, when they started eating meat again, incidents of heart disease came back up. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, two and a half acres can feed 100 people. So that means roughly 40 people can get fed on an acre. You could, you could and, and that is a lot more efficient use of our land area then grow, you know, then trying to raise a cow on an acre, which can, what, what can one cow feed about 10 people? You get four times the food production out of, out of an acre when you do it with vegetables. Um, so that's about what one person can handle, about uh, two and a half acres per person. I would say one and a half, somewhere between those two. Um, and then if you have a family, of course, you can up that a little bit. I know, talking about building your uh, field before you build your house and about what can you handle, Alex hit. Anybody here from the southeast, Alex Hitt is a farmer. Him and his wife have made their living off small farming for the last 30 years. They're getting older now, but, uh, I mean, they've done it for 30 years. They've made a good living off small farming. And they had some acreages they bought. And when they bought their acreages, they, didn't ha they spent all their money on the land. And they somehow floated investment shares to just get started. And uh, somehow they paid off their investors. Now they own it free and clear. But at first they, they took investors and they somehow compensated them. I, I forget the whole story, but it's really kind of ingenious. And the first five years, well, maybe it was two or three years, they lived in a tent. And, and all they did is work the fields. They put in any money they had, they put it on an irrigation system and put it in a deer fence. And they put, just spent all the money on the field, the field, the field, and lived in a tent for the first three years of their married life. They were high school, uh, college sweethearts. And, and then, uh, then they had enough money to build them a little house after three years of living in a tent. But by then their field was already going. And they, I don't know if they're Christians or what they are, but they, they actually followed that injunction in Proverbs, first, you know, take care of the field and then build the house. They did it and it's worked out great for them. Uh, what I propose to do in this uh, 
what was the one before that? Okay, what, I propo what I'm proposing here, I call this raised beds. Do you see any wooden structure in there? No. No. Are those beds raised? Yeah. Why are they raised? Because you've designated them as permanent beds, and here you have permanent grassed-in walkways, and these, these guys look like they do what I advocate, and that's mow them. They're mowed permanent walkways. Every year you leave this alone, and you just work these beds. And they're like four-foot-wide beds where you can reach the middle, four feet wide because you can reach the middle uh, from either side, and you never have to step on these except for when you're tilling then you're allowed to step on it or, you know, doing the broad fork. And I'll tell you what a broad fork is later. You know, there's, but normally that's the rule. Stay off the beds because why? You don't want to press the air out because when you press the air out, you get no biology working for you, okay? And you keep these walkways in grass because when it rains, you're not tromping mud everywhere, you know what I mean? It's just grass is a lot easier and healthier and you're not having to weed this. All you have to do is mow it. Doesn't that look nice? Now, they, they mow their walkways. You know, my friend Daniel, he liked to let his grass grow high to keep it as a physical barrier between his rows. I kind of like the mowed method better. But. Well, evident, every, every year you have to go in and reborder them a lot of times. And if you don't have too big a place, that's a, a doable. And sometimes if you've got a bigger place with bigger beds, you don't even have to reborder them. I mean, you just go in there and, t you know, mark your string so you're on a line and then just till, you know, lightly till. And that tillage kind of keeps the grass at bay because you're right, it does want to creep in on you. And I've had to go back and reborder the beds. But once, and at first it's really hard because the ground's really hard. But if you pick your spot like a couple days after rain when the ground's soft and, you know, and the more you do it, the easier that job becomes because it gets looser and looser and looser, okay? Here's a guy who does the same thing, but he's chosen, instead of grass, he's chosen to mulch his beds, which you can do. I don't, I don't prefer that, but that is a acceptable. This is garlic, it looks like, and you can see his drip irrigation in there. We'll get to that. Um, it's another form of raised beds. Uh, here's a way to do raised beds with a tractor. And the problem with this is, you know, this is a small tractor that's good for small farming, but you can see you can't make four foot wide beds. This is about probably two and a half, maybe three feet between there. To get a four foot wide spacing, you gotta buy a big, huge tractor. Now they make them, but I think I don't want, I can't afford that much of a tractor. And plus it's kind of overkill. The only, thing, the only reason you're buying it is not because, you know, the horsepower is way too much than you need. And so there's that extra expense. But, um, but you're buying it for the wheel clearance so you can make a four-foot wide bed. I like four-foot wide beds because when you do a two-foot walkway and a four-foot wide bed, you can mow the two-foot walkway because most push mowers are like a 21, 22-inch deck, right? So you can get in there and mow the walkway. And when you're four-foot, two-foot, you've got the greatest amount of growing surface in ratio to your walkway. If you go, you know, you can do a three foot wide bed, which is kind of what this is. And because it's tractor, see, they don't get the grass. If you're going to grass the walkways, you're going to have to plant the grass anew. I like to just keep the grass there season after season after season. But you can do it this way. But these three foot wide beds, if you go three foot bed, two foot walkway, well, then your ratio between productive ground and walkway, non-productive ground, is a little bit less in your favor. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so that's why I like to do four and two because it works out. And that's great because it's a lot easier weeding. I'm going to have to keep the weeds off my beds, right? But I can only get to, I get to mow the walkway. So that's, depending on what size it is, it's roughly about 30%. Is it 30? I think it is 30. It's at least 25. Some, it depends on the length of the beds, but it works out to be about 25 to 30% 
of your area, you don't have to worry about weeding. You just mow it. That's a lot easier than weeding, right? And the only thing you got to worry about taking care of the weeds is, is in these. So really with this kind of system, you're setting up yourself to manage your weeds, okay? And if you don't set it up this way, you're going to have problems. These guys, it looks like they went through with a tractor, right, and got this all tilled up, and then they're by hand, they're going, see, they strung out the strings, they want a nice straight bed. Why do you want nice straight beds? Because it helps with your weeding, makes your, makes your life a lot easier and everything a lot more efficient when you don't have to bob and weave off of all your irregularities. You know, you want straight rows, straight beds, because you can be really efficient when you're weeding and you can go through it really fast and you're having to make an adjustments all the time. You can get used to a motion when you're weeding and you can fly through it, but if you got zigs and zags and all this other stuff and your lines aren't straight, then you're always having to correct and adjust and correct and adjust and that takes more time. And you want to get done with weeding quick. You don't want to take extra time. So this is another way of building raised beds without the, the you don't want the boxes. They look nice at the beginning, but they take a lot of extra work and then they're constantly falling apart on you. You know, if you've got biological soil, it's eating those, the wood on the boxes and you can't use pressure treated because all that creosote goes into your soil. So those, those, those wooden boxes are always disintegrating and they're always a constant maintenance upkeep. So I don't like structured beds. I like just raised beds done naturally without all the structure. Uh, this is another way, this, this is Rachel who took over from Daniel and I assisted that season. And um, see, even women can do this. In fact, I know two women farmers who can farm circles around me. Because they're just good. They, they got the attention to detail. They got everything it takes, and they bring some good stuff to market. And everybody loves them because they're just such good farmers. And, and uh, she's got a BCS. That's the, uh, that's the sort of the big-time tiller. And she's doing an acre and a half. That was an acre and a half. And what she's doing here is she went through here with her tractor and tilled this up. And now she's reestablishing the walkways. And she's got a furrower behind this rototiller. And it's just kind of pushing dirt to either side. Now, the problem with this is this is not two feet. It's a little narrower than that. And you get weed problems in the, your walkways when you can't get in there with a the mower. This was her first year because she kind of learned the hard way. I was trying to talk her out of that. But anyway. But that's another way you can establish beds. Now, this is the one at the, what I did this year. I think, huh? Yeah, this was, the, this was on church property. Uh, I can tell you about that after, after the lecture, how that went. But this is on church property. And what I did is I established my beds. And here I've just mowed down my cover crop. And now I'm tilling that cover crop in lightly, not deeply. Remember from the first lesson, always till in lightly. And I've done this, and I'm about ready to go back and do the other row. And that's a, that's a counter-rotating tine tiller. And you see, I've put the strings in so I can keep it, everything straight. Yes? When you're mowing, when you're mowing the, the, the weak part of this system is your cover crop gets pretty high, and that's good. You want that. You know, and, and then, when you, then how do you take it down? It's hard for a little mower, you know, a little lawnmower, to, to take down grass that's this tall. It just bogs down, right? So... The weak part of this whole system is I have to get out there with hedge shears and hedge the grass down with hedge shears and then mow it. And when I mow it, I, would use, I mulch it because I don't want the stuff flinging out everywhere. I want to keep it right there. So you're collecting the... I'm not collecting it. It's going right back into the soil. huh? Dropping it and tilling it in. You're dropping it right there because that's, that's biomass. I want that. That's carbon. No, when you're mowing the walkways. Oh, mowing the walkways what? 
No, I mulch that. I mulch. I don't. Let, I don't want anything flinging out to the side. If I have a side discharge, it's gonna. It's gonna be like torpedoes going into my plants. It's gonna. You know, I'm gonna get wounds in the stems of my good plants off to the side. If it has a back discharge, I'm gonna get grass all over me, and maybe it. Maybe it worked. But really, all I want to do is just mulch it right down there. I. I Unless I'm collecting it for, I was talking to some people about compost, and I want that green grass for my compost pile, I'll collect it on a rear discharge then, but otherwise I put the, 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 what are they, block, the blocking plate on there and keep it a mulching mower. You know, buy a good mulching mower and just drop all your stuff right back in the ground. And here especially, you want to drop it right back on the bed when you do get it, you know, you do get it down enough with your head shears to mow it. And that's the weak link. Permanent beds, permanent walkways. Four feet wide, two foot walkways. And that's a recent picture. That was my garden either this year, this spring, or I forget when that was. Maybe last year. I'm not sure. That's Gaia Gardens. Same picture comes up again and again. You see how this is uh, broccoli cabbages? Daniel was funny. He was so proud of that spring broccoli. It's hard to grow spring broccoli because most of the broccoli wants to bolt because it's getting warmer. It's easier to grow fall broccoli. But he was growing spring broccoli, and that's a test of a good farmer, because, or maybe it's just a test that you got fortunate that year. But when you get broccoli that big in the spring, especially in the southeast when we have short little springs, it goes like from winter to summer real quick, you know. And you get big broccoli that big, he, he held that up and he goes, this is why they call it a head. <laughs> it's as big as his head. <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, <laughs> but uh, beds not permanent tend to overtill. Oh, yeah. Uh, he did these with a tractor hiller, you know, like that one picture with the disc coming in and, and then he ran a, a rototiller over the top of it to smooth it out. Uh, this is Rachel's beds done with a, a furrower after she tractor tilled everything. Um, and he planted this grass in here. It just wasn't, he didn't do permanent, these are neat, none of these are permanent beds. They, they tractor tilled both these. Uh, but the beds are not permanent, and when the beds are not permanent, my opinion is, and when you're doing it with a tractor, and that's why you don't need an expensive four-wheel tractor, I really prefer doing three acres or less with a BCS or a tiller, because that way you can do, it's small enough where you can do permanent beds and permanent walkways. When you get over like an acre like this stuff was, you're forced to use a tractor, and now, you know, you have to just till up everything and then reestablish your walkways every time. And that's a lot of extra work in my book. But, you know, people do it. Uh, well, usually the tillers on a tractor, you got horsepower, right? And you have to have a certain, if you, if you have a smaller tiller, you got too much horsepower for that little bit of a tiller. And like I told you, you know, the, the gap between the tires, they don't go four feet. Usually three feet is a nice size tractor. Okay, so you have three foot wide beds. You know, you can live with that. But they don't make tillers on those tractors that are just three feet wide. They're always, they always think you want to till behind the tire, right? And I don't. I don't want to till behind the tire. I just want to till between the tires. And they don't make something like that yet. If they do, I'm, I'm interested. You know, let me know because I'd like to buy a tractor that could do that. Yeah. Good question. What kind of grass? Uh, where was it? Okay. I, uh, this is all Bermuda grass. Remember I was talking earlier about rapid repair grasses and not bunch grasses? This is a pain in the neck, talking about wanting grass wanting to come into your beds. This grass, does, now crabgrass, it's got crabgrass in here too. Crabgrass wants to reach across into the open spaces on surface. But Bermuda likes to tunnel, you know, it's subterranean. It's, it's like, actually you're just seeing a, a leaf. 
the stem is actually underground and you're just seeing leaves come up as the grass, right? That is the worst grass. And I'm constantly fighting it because this is Bermuda and crabgrass in here. This year, in the fall, I went and tried to sow some fescue on there and at least try to establish some fescue. And maybe it can, if I'm you know, good at it and do it for three or four years continuously, I can establish fescue here and it'll compete out the uh, uh, crabgrass. I'm, people tell me that's impossible. Crabgrass, is, crabgrass and Bermuda grass is always going to win. You know? <laughs> but, but I'm going to try to do the fescue because fescue is a bunch type grass. So if you do, do bunch type grass, uh, they call it a bunch grass or a grass that doesn't want to run. It just, you plant it, the seed sprouts, it makes a nice little rosetta of grass and you have to do them, to get a fullness, you have to do them side by side so it looks full, you know, but it, it stays right there. It doesn't want to go and, you know, do extra grasses like strawberry plants or something. Uh, but that's a good question. Fescue, in my area, I'm a little too far south for fescue, but it does work if I'm diligent at it. Uh, the, the more north, you, it's a cool season grass. It likes cooler weather, so fescue works good in the, in the cool season uh, states. All right, this is a raised bed. This is what you could do, all you backyard gardeners. This is what you could do. You take that same principle, they do them three acres or less, and you can just do it in your backyard. Uh, lay out your beds, two-foot walkway, four-foot beds. You can do that all with hand tools when it's that small. All right, this is, a, this is not so good. Most people, when they go out there and say, I don't want a garden, they go out there and they just till up a big old huge square with their tiller. Don't do that. There's no, there's, these are little bitty walkways. I, you probably have to like walk on a tightrope to get down there. And then when you get the plants growing, you're just going to be knocking the plants around. This is way too small of walkways, if, even if that's what it is. And you're going to have a huge weed problem. There's, you're going to have to weed this whole area. When you do the walkway method, you know, 30% of that is just mowing. Here, you're, all 100% of that, you're going to have to keep weeded. It's a lot of extra work. You're going to get frustrated and you're not going to do it. Here's another example of going out there and tilling up a big rectangle. You can see the weeds are already starting to grow everywhere. And once they get this big, it's hard to combat them. We're going to get into how to take uh, weed management here pretty soon. But you're just setting yourself up for failure there when you do, do, go out there and do the big square. Do, don't do this. Do that. Okay? Does everybody get that? Everybody under? You know, okay, I won't keep repeating myself. Huh? That's a wheel hoe. I, I got one I'm going to show you guys, a, a sort of a modern version. That's like an old style one. But they've been around for years. Now, here's a guy out in Florida. I went and visited. Uh, you know, whenever I go visit somewhere, here's a, I want you to take this down. Localharvest.org. Localharvest.org. I was on vacation in the Tampa area. And anytime I go anywhere and I'm going to stay somewhere, one of those days, you know, some people go do touristy things. I like to look up local organic farms in the area. And call them up and say, hey, can I, go get, can I come give you a half a day of work? And they're like, sure. You know, they don't believe me, but I actually show up and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah you're the guy who called. Okay. Uh, anyways, I went down to Florida and these guys, they, they, now, they had a, I don't know how they afforded it or what their gig was, but he was the farm manager and this was, with the, this was the intern. And they were going down there and these are four foot wide beds done with a tractor. But that is a big honking tractor. I don't know where they got the money for that tractor. But uh, they were doing it, and actually they're going through here, and they, had the, they must have deep pockets somewhere because they had a, he's going at down here, and he's riding on the, there's somebody up there in the cab, and he's on the back, and he's, uh, they're cultivating between, uh, they got, it looks like cabbage or broccoli growing here, and in the middle they're doing companion planting, and, um, and they're growing arugula. 
Now, people talk about companion planting all the time. It's a weeding nightmare to do companion planting. I don't like it. But when you get a fast crop like arugula, arugula goes really fast. It can usually grow faster than the weeds, and pretty soon it establishes itself, and you can eat it. Arugula is, everybody, everybody eating arugula? It's really nice. I, I really love it. Yeah. Uh, and it grows really fast. So I'm thinking that would be a, you know, I'm not, I'm not into companion crops, but because of the weeding nightmare, because, you know, get different growth rates. But when you're growing a slower cabbage and you get this fast growing arugula that it's shading out the ground, so you're not going to get a bunch of weeds, I think this is a great idea. And when I saw it, I thought, you know, I'm going to have to change my stubbornness about not wanting to do companion planting because of the you know weed management problem because I could see where this would not be a weed management problem and what they're doing here is they're coming in and doing one last weeding you know cultivating the top of the soil uh, before they pretty much just have to let it go you know the plants are big enough to take you know they're finally getting their one last weeding in before the plants get too big and you can't get in there with it you know what I mean uh, and the layout, the reason layout is important is, is primarily for weed control. Uh, it also helps in rotation. You know, when you looked at those beds, you saw they were all the same size, the same length, four foot wide and all of them the same length. When you do it that way, you set yourself up for easy crop rotation. Crop rotations are great because you thwart some of the pests and disease by changing the location every year. And certain things like to follow certain other things. Uh, one, of the one of my rotations is, you know, tomatoes are my star crop. I make more money on tomatoes than anything else. So I want to put beans in before tomatoes because beans actually build my soil because they're nitrogen fixing, right? So I like to grow beans, till those in when they're done, and then grow my tomatoes in, in rebuilt soil because beans are about the only thing that are soil builders. Most everything else takes from the soil, okay? Beans actually build soil. So I like to grow tomatoes behind beans, and I like to grow, um, I like to grow, uh, what is it, um, sweet potatoes, then onions, and then the beans. Because sweet potatoes break up the ground, then my garlic and onions go in behind them, the ground's all broken up and loose because I've been digging the sweet potatoes and the sweet potatoes have been growing. And then I come in behind the uh, garlic and onions, which scavenge sulfur, and remember, sulfur helps fix nitrogen. And so I plant my beans after the garlic and onions, and my beans do better because I've had the, the previous crop has gathered nitrogen into the soil, which my beans can use. If you, if, you, if, if you have a bad layout, look at this. This is an actual farm. I took this picture. And, and what did this guy do? He comes in and builds all his little boxes. Now he can't fit a mower between there. And he laid out all this landscape cloth, you know, thinking he was combating the weeds. But when he when he, it, 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 he let the weeds get too big, it got out of hand, and he got frustrated and left it. And this is what his garden looks like. That's not growing any food. It's a weed-choked mess. <laughs> but that's what poor layout did. It's cute when you first do it. It looked really good day one, the first week. But then a few weeds came. They didn't, he'd had to go. He was left having to pull them. I'm going to get into weed management. Would weed management follows this lesson. You have to have a good layout to get in good, into good weed management. Here's my own personal beds at home. And uh, this is before, these beds are uh, not quite four feet and these are a little more than two feet. So I since wide my beds so I get four foot wide bed. I inherited that L-shaped one back there so don't pay attention to that one but it works. Uh, I didn't think it would but it does. And uh, it's just three beds and I grow uh, uh, this is peppers. Those are tomatoes on that end. And then uh, these are all summer crops. I grow okra here 
and I go cu cu cucumbers here in that space. And then, huh? Uh, I'm mulching certain ones, uh, peppers and tomatoes, because they're there so long. They're, they're annuals, but they're there from, you know, like spring all the way till the very end. So, but cucumbers, okra, you don't really need to mulch because okra, I forget what I grew up here. Anyway, call it the big summer five. But anyway, okra, you don't need mulch because okras are kind of path, uh, aleopathic, which means they kind of put out a, they get some sunlight through. They, they don't have real good dense coverage. But um, they seem to put out some kind of poison where weeds don't really like to grow around okra. So why waste your money on mulch when the, you, know, you don't really have a weed problem around okra anyway? I, I, mean, I weed them early, but I mean, after that, the weeds aren't really a problem around okra. Cucumbers are in and out pretty fast, and I don't really mulch them because they're in and out so fast. And I forget why I don't... Oh, beans. I do pole beans over there. And I don't really mulch those. I just weed those a couple of times, and pretty much... And after that, the, the foliage is so dense... No sunlight gets down on the ground. There's no weeds. Only your uh, nightshade family, peppers, eggplant, tomatoes. But, but well, I don't do potatoes because you, you're really tilling them. They're not too, they don't stay in the ground too long. You can do this thing called double digging, and I did do it when I wanted to extend that bed. Everybody heard of double digging? Great for small gardeners, and, but it's a lot of work, even for a small space. I mean, basically, this is double digging. You mark off your, your bed. This is a four-foot wide bed, and I'm going this way with it. This is my initial trench. You put the initial dirt in the wheelbarrow, and then you'll take a section of this dirt and turn it over. Well, before you do that, you come in and you loosen that second depth. That's why it's called, this is the first dig, and then you don't dig this out. You just sort of loosen it. Man, man that was so hard. I mean, I had to, I, these tools were kind of useless. I had to, to loosen that up. I had to go get a mattock, a uh, pickaxe, and loosen it. But I finally did it. But I mean, I just went like 10 feet. And I just about wore, it took me like two days. And I wore myself out going 10 feet. And uh, then you turn this over. Once you loosen that, you turn this over into it. I always put like a handful of gypsum in there because gypsum is supposed to flocculate it a little bit. And you turn this over. And then you keep going down, like just turn it into the empty space. And then when you get to the end, you put the original back in the end. That's called double digging. And that's a really great way to do it if you got the the muscle to do it and uh, and your garden's not too big and here it is at the end I have uh, put some compost on there see how clumpy and wadi it is but I've double dig that whole bed and there's the mattock I had to use eventually uh, this is at the church garden we did uh, that's uh, the guy uh, that was on the church board that was helping me and here we are in a lot bigger space but we're doing the same thing we uh, got the tractor in here, and we tilled all this up. Uh, we, we came in here, and we took out as much Bermuda grass as we could. You can see these walkways at, at this point are, uh, right then I should have planted fescue, and I didn't. I messed up, and the Bermuda came back on me. Uh, but here I'm making the beds. I'm putting like an inch of compost on those beds. And, uh, and basically what we did here, we had a measuring tape, you know, like one of those 100-footers. And like every, uh, we worked it out, so we took, put a wheelbarrow full in, like every 12 feet or something like that. So we had an even layer of compost. Like every 12 feet, we did a wheelbarrow. There's a wheelbarrow. Uh, and we were just spreading the compost there. Now, we didn't do a soil test. We did a soil, this was in the early summer. We did a soil test later that fall. And it came back saying, don't put any more compost on. Because <laughs> we had jacked up our potassium numbers. And here's that same garden later on that summer. You can see it's a very productive garden. We had a good, good, good year. That's back in 2010. But um, again, here's the strings. And this is, onion, uh, this is garlic. 
And there's two foot walkways. There's a pole beans. He wanted to grow corn. I didn't want to, but he, I, let, he taught me into it. Uh, these are peppers, which they had some problems. He mulched them with, we mulched them with leaves, and I'm not sure I would do that. I like straw. Can you explain that folding setup? Huh? Folding? Oh, the poles? Yeah, well, that's just something I came up with. I, uh, I got, uh, this goes in the tools, but that's, uh, that's something I devise. Uh, these are uh, tea steak, tea posts. You ever heard of those, tea posts? You can only get the good ones at Tractor Supply. Home Depot doesn't have the good ones, and I don't know what they have in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> I mean, we're kind of spoiled here because, you know, we got all these stores, you know. Uh, but but, uh, but, um, but uh, these are like 10, or these are 8-footers. I think that's the... They make a taller one, but that's the only one they carry. They don't have to special order. But they come in various sizes, five foot to eight feet. And, uh, and basically, I just uh, cut a little. I don't have to show it to you. I can't really explain it. But that's just my trellising method for pole beans. I ran a wire right here, about a foot off the ground, and just tied it from here to here. And then I ran a wire up the top there, and then just wrapped uh, twine you know, natural fiber twine around it in each end and let them, you know, crawl up, you know, one side. I got two rows, you know, one's crawling up one V and one of them's crawling up the other V. And yeah, it's going from here to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, about a foot off the ground, huh? Yeah, in the middle, in the middle, right. Because, and then the beans, I just put them on and they take up and they string up that way and those string up that way and sometimes they cross. I let them do whatever they want. Uh, but, um, but that was kind of cheap. It's pretty tedious. I get, sometimes I tell, ask people, say, hey, I'll buy you lunch if you come out and help me string the beans, you know, string the trellises, because that's tedious. I've tried to put these like every six inches. So in like in a 10-foot gap, I can put about 20, 20 sisal, uh, you know, natural fiber twines. And I like that because I can just come in at the end when the season's done, and I just, they're natural fiber, they decompose, so I just cut them all down, let them rot in the soil. But I, I got, you got to come in and cut them fine because if you leave them too long, they'll wrap around your tiller. So you got to cut them in like, it's, it's a bit of a job. I usually pay somebody to help me um, or, you know, get somebody, you know, buy them dinner or something if they help me. It's fun. You know, people like to come out and help you sometimes. Um, Okay, here's the layout. When you do this in your, for all you backyard farmers that are pretty small, doesn't work for you tractor guys, but uh, are your, you know, but when you're pretty small, what you want to do is you want to establish your big area. This is the big rectangle, but except you don't want to go till this whole area. What you want to do is put a, a drive a rebar in the outside corners, and you want to square it up. You know how to square it up. Run it. Make sure you know you you do. Uh, now look at this. See, four foot, two feet, four feet, two feet, four. What you do is, if you're going to do it this way, you'll do, uh, this is six feet, right? Six feet, six feet, six feet minus two. So you, the number of beds times six, so in this case, it's three times six is 18, right? Minus two, because you don't have to worry about that two-foot walkway there, right? Number of beds times six, 18 minus two is 16 feet. So it's 16 foot width, and that's determined by how many beds I have and how wide those beds are. And in this case, six feet is what I use. If I did three foot beds, it would be five times the number of beds minus two. You see what I'm saying? Uh, and uh, so that's 18 feet. We can count it. Four, four, four is 12, and then four more is 18. It all works every time. And you can make these as long as you want, just as long as they're the same size. And the reason, again, it, you, 
the reason you want them all the same size is it helps you in your planning. When you rotate the next year, you're not having to say, well, I'm in a smaller space than I was in last year. How many plants do I have to, how many seeds do I need? It's the same thing as you did last year. It's just in a new spot. But because the spot is the same, the bed is the same size, you don't have to rethink. And if you like what you did last year, you know, if you like what you did that year, then just repeat it the next year in the same spot. And you have to buy the same number of seed, the same amount of any kind of amendments you put on that bed, you put on the next bed. And you're not having to sit there refigure and refigure and refigure because the size is always going up and down and all around. Okay? It helps you with crop rotation. It's why you want to standardize your bed sizes. Uh, and then to square it up, if you just did 18 feet by 10 feet, or, you know, yeah, 18 feet by 10 feet, you might have 18 feet here, you have 10 feet there, 18 feet there, and 10 feet there, but it might be a, it might not be a square, it might be parallelogram, like over in the corner there. So how do you square that up? Measure your diagonals, do your Pythagorean, Pythagorean theorem, and uh, for right triangles, and that way, you know, you just do 18 uh, squared by 10 foot squared and you'll get what this uh, hypotenuse should be. And this one should equal this one. And when that happens, you've got a square rectangle. And you've got nice even beds that aren't all wishy-washy. Okay, this is Gaia Gardens from a Google Air Map. Now here is a 20 acre plot, all 20 acres. You can see that the townhome community developed 10 acres of that into townhomes. There's about 70 townhomes there. And they left the other 10 acres clear. They built, they had a spring up there in the woods. They dammed it up right here. This is an earth dam, or what they call it, a burn or whatever. And the creek runs all the way down here. You can see they had some outbuildings here. They got a tool shed and a greenhouse there. And you can see that, uh, I'm going to give you the other picture, but they developed 10 acres. They left 10 acres uh, to develop into a farm. This is a sloped area. They put blueberries on the slope. Perennials, right? Because it's hard to do tilling annuals and till ground on sloped land. You get erosion and it's hard to, and dangerous to work a tractor on sloped ground, okay? Because people roll tractors all the time. Uh, but these are flat spots and they were able to get, uh, this is an acre and a half. This is about uh, one and a quarter acre and this is about a quarter acre over here and that's about a quarter of an acre. Anyways, it works out to be about two and a half acres. Two acres, sorry, two acres. One and a half and then that's a half acre and that's a half acre. In it? Something like that. And that's an acre up there. Yeah, that's what it is. Anyways, I'm going to show you when I go to this next slide. And this is how they laid out the field. Now, I kind of turned it around, so you're going to have to kind of stand on your head. But, uh, but anyways, what we did here is we did 12 fields. This was blueberries, so we won't count that. And see these little numbers here? 10 by 2. This, this, is the field, this is a field designation. This is field 11, that's 12. Then 10 was a bit of a piece together one. Then you had 9, 8, 7. All these beds, even though they're different wrangles, they're the same square footage. All of them are 5,000 square feet. Okay? Uh, one field, and like this is a field, is 5,000 square feet. And inside that, we developed each bed, each four foot wide bed, we cut into 50 foot segments. So this is 100 feet. So that's two. 50-foot beds, boom, 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 boom. And now that's in our mind's eye. You really can't see that when you're out there or on this picture. There's 10 beds here. 10, 10 I said non-regulation beds, by two 50-foot beds it gives me 20 50-foot beds in a 5,000-square-foot plot. Here I had 150-foot 
So there's seven long, you know, non-regulation beds, and each non-regulation bed is divided into three 50-foot beds, right? So I have 20, I have just about as many beds here. 20 here, 21 here. It's close enough, okay? That's as close as I can get it. The point is, I, every, every one of these fields is 5,000 square feet. They're all standardized. Uh, I can get a 12-year crop rotation. That's really good to get a 12-year crop rotation. You don't want to get more than that. Well, you could go up to 15 maybe if you had 15 fields. But you want to do it like this. So, you know, you want more than a six-year crop rotation. And you want, you know, somewhere less than 20 in a crop, year crop rotation. And every year, this crop will move over to number one again. And then one go two and two to go, you know, and everything will move down one. And that way you're rotating the same family of crops every year. And it really helps standardize your crop rotation. Okay. Here's those fields. I, I shouldn't have said that because here it is. Here's field number seven, right over there. It's 150 feet long. And you can see in my mind's eye for planning purposes, I got seven non-regulation beds. These are walkways here. And I, in each of these is 50 feet long, okay? Now, some of you bigger farmers that are talking about 10 acres, you want to do this. This is something you could do. Because when you're doing a small system in your backyard, your bed is your crop rotation. Here, you've you got 20 beds, and like, as long as I do the same family of plant, like I could do some in peppers and some in tomatoes, it's the same family of plant, the solanace family. So I keep all that plant family in one bed, and then I rotate that bed, right? You don't have to do the same crop, just the same family in that crop, and then you rotate it around. And you can see in field one, where's field one? Right up there, it's 200 feet long, so there's four 50-foot wide beds, but there's only five of them. 21 total beds here, 20 beds here. Everything is roughly the same. Why is that a good thing? Planning purposes, it makes life a lot easier. And here it is again. Uh, then I just added some designations to it. You know, you could, so you, when you write your notes, you can say in 1A, I'm going to plant this, in 1B, I'm going to plant that, in 1C, I'm going to plant that. It pays to be organized when you do this because you don't want to sit there and be haphazard with it and not know where stuff is growing, not be able to take notes and designate areas, know where you got weed problems, know where you got soil problems, and you know, you can pinpoint things a lot easier. Planning, if you're going to be successful in anything, you got to plan it out. Planning is everything. So when you get out in the field, you're not sitting there scratching your head and time's getting away from you. There's only so many hours in the day and you got to make efficient use of all them hours. If you're sitting there doing this, this is something you should have done at night or in the winter when you're planning and not something you need to be doing when you're out there and it's daylight. When you get it, you need to have, you, you should have already made this plan when you get out there in the spring. So you're, you're making use, efficient use of that daylight and getting work done and not sitting there drawing, you know, figuring stuff out in your head. It should be all figured out when you get out there. Now we move on to stuff. If you don't have flat ground, what do you do? Well, you can do contour farming where it tries to go, you know, perpendicular to the slope so it catches water. Now, when the slope is 6 to 12%, you can do contour farming. How do you know 6 to 12%? Well, you get one of those long levels. You know, you can get a three-foot level, and you just, you know, you put it on the ground. If it's slope ground, you know, it's, it, the bubble's going to be up here. Bring it up, get the bubble centered, and you measure three foot, and you do the ratio of three foot by the vertical rise that's off the ground, you know, in the air. And then you can work out the percentage slope that is. That's how you measure the slope. So anywhere from 6 to 12, you can do contour farming where you curve the beds to match, be perpendicular to any slope. Or if it goes more than 12%, you have to do terrace farming, which a lot of work. But 
People have done it. Once you establish it, it pretty much holds. But in the beginning, it's a lot of work. And that's uh, when you have over 12. My, my advice, try to find some flat land. <laughs> it's, or, you know, contour farming at the very least. Don't go into the terrace farming. Mm. Uh, okay, here's the raised beds from the worms view. Ah, I got something. Right. Uh, here it is. These are, you know, these are low because when you till them up, you kind of, the dirt wants to go out when you're tiller, you kind of rake it back in. And then you have this little rise here, and you don't, you know, you try to plant a little bit in from the rise. My thing worked. So that's about a six inch curb. And then you want to come about, sometimes I plant right on the peak there. Sometimes I like to come in about three inches. So you really, from plant to plant, you only have about 30 inches. If you don't use that, if you plant right on the little dip there, you can have 36 inches. But that's a four foot wide bed. And you, you can see you don't really get in really four foot because you can't plant right next to the grass or right next to the walkway. And here's your uh, tractor. Now, if you do a tractor, the tractor tires usually aren't two feet wide. Don't get greedy and try to go right in the same tractor path as you made. Come over a little bit and make a wider walkway and then do the, you know, till the next swath. Uh, because you want to try to keep a two-foot walkway here that you can push mow. Even, even, even if I had a tractor, I'd want to do that. I'd want to keep that two-foot walkway I can mow. Uh, so you want, uh, well, anyways, you get the general idea of that. Your bed width, center line to center line, is, uh, uh, you know, from the middle of that to the middle of that, or the middle of that to the middle of that. It'd be six feet in this case. Um, anything else on that one? Anyways. On your terrace farming, mm -hmm. uh, couldn't you level it out instead of terrace farming? Couldn't you level it out and build your soil up? It'd be a lot of work. I mean, you're talking about some major excavation there. Right. If you got the equipment, sure. I mean, I, if I had a little bit of slopes and lulls, and I would, I would try to level it out, sure, and then build my soil on top of that, because you're probably much going to have subsoil. You know, usually you try to rake all the topsoil over here, level it out, and then put all the topsoil back on. But, yeah, it's not too slopey. I wouldn't want to go excavating mountains, though, just to make it level. I mean, you're going to burn a lot of gasoline, you know. I don't know if it's going to be worth it. But anyways, when you're plant spacing, uh, here's four-foot walkways, two-foot wide beds. And you don't want to do, people get into this, they see a video or something, and they do biointensive gardening, right? You've, we've heard of that. Now, I'm sure that works in some cases. But the problem with that is this is kind of like, you know, you put just a little bit of this here and a little bit of that there and a little bit of that there, and you've got no, when these are young, you can't really get in there and weed. There's just stuff all over the place. And then you have all these sun gaps. These are like full canopy circles. You have all these sun gaps, and where the sun is able to reach the soil, you're going to have weeds. You want to plant this so you got as little of uh, little of ground showing when these things get fully sized, because when it's totally shaded out, you won't have a weed problem. Okay, only time you have to weed is in the early beginnings when they're young and they're not fully canopied out. Now you don't want to get them too tight, or they won't grow as big as they should, and they won't fruit as much as they should. It's it's that happy balance, and you just get that with experience. But see, if you plant them straight across, if you do this sort of hodgepodge, you're going to get. You know, you're not going to be able to weed effectively around all that hodgepodge. You know, there's get a bob in and out with your weeder. And you're going to get, uh, later on, you're not going to get full uh, ground coverage, so it'll, uh, you know, keep the sunlight off. If you do, uh, you know, this sort of side-by-side -side type planting, well, even at full canopy, you can still see there's this big hole here in the middle. You're going to get weeds there. Plant it, alternate, stagger your crops like this, and you get a lot less sunlight getting through. You get a lot less weeds.
okay? Here's my mother looking at my lettuce. She's, and she's going, and she, my mother doesn't give me many compliments, and she's really complimenting, like, this looks really good. <laughs> so, so to get a compliment out of my mother, you must have done a good job. <laughs> and, uh, but this is uh, romaine lettuces, and uh, I staggered planted them. And you can see there's not a lot of sunlight getting through there at full size. I got the drip irrigation in right here, oh, yes. over here and here. Okay. Yep. They're plastic. They're plastic. Yeah, thin, like 15 mil plastic, huh? That's a good question. Again, you, you got the good questions. Um, there's different thoughts on that. I like to plant all at the same time. You can. You can, I mean, and I suffer some, I, 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 the, the back on that is you get through with your crop and you got it all at once and, you know, but it's a lot easier that way, you know, and you got, there's something to do with like, you don't have a lot of time. And when I get out there to plant, I like to get it all done. I don't want to plant 10 feet and have to come out two weeks or three weeks later and plant another 10 feet and gear up again. Cause a lot of the work is getting all the stuff out there to do the planting, you know, and, and then taking it all back in and getting it all back out again and taking it all back in. I like to grow, if I'm gonna do that, I like to grow an early maturing crop, a middle maturing crop and a late maturing crop and try to get a longevity of a harvest window with maturing stages, you know, rather than planting stages. And that's just my personal preference. A lot of people, a lot of good farmers plant successive plant according to time. I like to get a long harvest window according to crop variety, not time, because I like to get it all done at the same time. I don't want to come, I don't want to be planting lettuce all year, you know, all season. I want to plant my lettuce in the spring and be done with it. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm wrong. Um, this is on my spreadsheet. I have a planning guide spreadsheet I can show you guys later. But here, anything gets, I, and this is so I just don't have to think about it. It's right there on my spreadsheet. When I plant, I've got four foot wide beds. And when I plant something with two rows, normally I can plant them, I would plant them 36 inches apart. And that would give me a six inch curb. That would be four feet, 48, uh, 48 inches, right? But I cheat on that one and I come in and just plant them two feet apart and give myself a 12 inch curb. Normally, I try to I go for a six-inch curb, right? I plant right on that little apex. When I plant three rows, normally, I could plant in 36 inches, I could plant one here, one here, and one in the middle, and that gives me eight inches between rows, 18 inches between rows, right? But I cheat a little bit and move that in, so I get a, like a nine-inch curb and do 15 inches when I do anything in threes. And then when I do stuff in four rows, I just put, the, I put it on the apex and apex and do 12 inches in between. And then five rows, I got nine inches in between. Six, anything with six rows, I got seven inches in between. And I used to do seven rows on some things, but that got too tight and I couldn't get my weed tools in there. And I went back to just six rows is about the maximum I do anything in a four foot wide bed. And that gives me seven inches. That's plenty of room to get a small uh, stirrup hoe in. And, um, and I have myself a six inch curb. You know, and the curve is between the walkway grass and your first plant, okay? And so that's on there so I don't have to think about it every time. I say, oh, I want to do four rows here. What I need, what's the spacing I need? Oh, here it is, you know? And that way you just don't have to sit there and scratch your head every time and maybe mess up. Because you get out there and you start thinking about other things and all of a sudden you didn't get the spacing right. And it's too late once you plant it. 
uh, other considerations about where you put your bed. Uh, you want it to have sunshine uh, because sunshine is the engine and I don't care, you can't grow food crops in the shade. I mean, I, I mean you might have a space, but if it's a shady space, don't waste your effort. You know, uh, go buy a CSA share and buy your produce from a farmer who does grow it organically and locally, okay? Because you need sunshine. And some things, like with fruit crops, and I'm saying botanical fruit, you know, I'm not, not culinary fruit. With fruit crops, it takes a lot of energy. You're going to need eight plus hours of sunshine. Grass, flower, and stock crops, you need, a you can get away with seven. Uh, root crops, you can get away with six. And leaf crops, you can get away with five. Because it doesn't take a lot of energy to grow a leaf. But it takes... Any one of these other things, it takes more and more energy, and this being the maximum amount of energy you're going to use trying to grow something with a fruit on it, okay? So you need, what is your energy? Your sunshine is the energy. You need that sun. And the other thing is morning sun, when you're determining where your bed's going to be, you always want to have no trees, no tall trees to the east because you want that morning sun to come in and dry up any dew real quick. You don't want to have it be warm and sunny and dew, and dew still be on your flower, uh, your plants, because it's not getting any sunshine. And, you know, funguses, bad funguses like warm weather and wet. You want that dew to dry off there in a hurry. You're going to need that east sun. Don't put your bed anywhere near tall trees to the east or tall trees to the south. I got that problem with that plot I'm in. The tall trees are to the south, and come about September, things start getting shaded out because the sun's sinking lower and lower and lower. Tall trees to the west are not a big problem. Tall trees to the north are no problem at all. Actually, I would prefer to have all my tall trees to the north because it, it operates as a wind block. From cold north winds coming down, you, you get a wind block with tall trees to the north. Uh, other considerations. Okay, bottom land, everybody says, oh, that's nice bottom land. Well, bottom land is great because it does collect nutrients. But the bad thing about bottom land is it doesn't drain sometimes. It just stays wet. And then you're going to go anaerobic, and you're not going to keep, be able to keep a healthy microbe population under wet, soggy, anaerobic conditions. So be careful with bottom land, because if it doesn't drain, you've got big problems. But it does tend to collect more nutrients and is richer. Uh, drainage too much, not enough. You can, go, you, you can have too much drainage where it never holds water. You can have not enough where it holds too much water. Um, Plants need water, but they definitely, if you do, if you, if they, they need air too. And if you have all water and no air, they suffer, they drown just like we do. Uh, the slope, we already went over that. Um, you know, you, you try to want to get it on a flat spot. You don't really want a slope. Wind blocks are usually good to the north or to the prevailing winds, as long as they don't block your sun. And by wind block, I mean a tall shrubs, like if you want to do blueberries. Do them to the north. If you're a tall shrub, you know, you could do a wall of blueberries. It would act as a wind block, a north wind block, and you'd be helping your, helping your beds out. Uh, be, be aware of microclimates. I had one guy, he, put his, he had a, one of those houses that had a tall windowless wall, and, it was to the, and, and this wall was facing south, and he put his bed right there. Well, that wall reflected a lot of that summer heat, and, man, it was hard to grow anything there that was a little sensitive to heat. I mean, some plants liked it, but a lot, he couldn't grow potatoes there. It was just too hot, even in the early, because the, the, the sunlight was bouncing off that wall, and, and the, that little microclimate, I mean, it would be four or five degrees hotter there than it would anyplace else in the yard. And it is good in the wintertime. I saw in China where they used that wall mm -hmm. to absorb the heat in the wintertime. Okay. And they, would, they had plastic they would pull down over it to keep the heat in, and then at night they would roll down a straw mat to 
keep it in at night. And it, I mean, they grew in the middle of winter. They were growing their crops. Here. It, it, it can work in your favor at times, too. Microclimates can be good or they can be bad. And microclimates means they're just a little different than the surrounding area because of some structure that's there. Uh, soil texture and previous use, of course. But the thing is, don't get discouraged. People complain about this. They say, I can't farm because my soil's no good. You can take really poor soil and with cover cropping and with biology, you can turn really poor soil that wouldn't grow a thing into good soil. So don't get discouraged. It might just take you a little longer to get there, but you will get there. Uh, but it is a consideration to make if you have a choice. You know, you don't want something that's been a dumping ground for, you know, car mechanics or something like that. I mean, that might take a little longer to clean up. Don't, don't, if you've got a choice, I mean, if that's all you've got, go ahead and do it. You know, the, the biology can take care of it, but it might take it a little longer. Uh, and then, this is very important, uh, always choose crop varieties that are best suited for your location and varieties that have adapted. I like to get seeds from the north because northern seeds, they have a big winter there and it kills a lot of seedborne funguses. Uh, but I, with certain plants, I don't have a problem with trying to get from the southeast. So I'm growing things that originated in the southeast because I'm in the southeast. And I just think they, they create healthier plants. But also varieties, you know, uh, an example of this would be in, in Georgia, we get really short springs and really short falls. Now, if I want to grow broccoli, I, got, I, got only got, I only got about 50 days to grow broccoli where it's like broccoli weather. You know what I mean? If it gets too cold, they check out. If it gets too hot, they check out. So I got about 50 days, maybe not even, to grow broccoli. Now, broccoli takes a little while to grow. So they've got 50-day broccoli, a couple of varieties, and they got 80-day broccoli. Well, now, if I lived in Canada, I could get away with growing 80-day broccoli all the time. I could grow it all summer because they, they can do it. But in Georgia, I got about 50 days to get my broccoli up and grown, so I gotta, I'm only limited to 50-day broccoli. That's all I can grow good. Now, I can try 80-day broccoli, but it's not, probably not going to work out too well. So always grow, pick a varieties that are good for your area, okay? I always like to grow longer varieties. I like to grow a couple, because usually if a plant stays in the ground longer, it's got more nutrition. And it's, if it stays in the ground longer, it's something you can't find at the store. Usually stores are full of short-maturing, low-nutrition crops because they, they're about money and getting it in and out quick, right? It's a luxury to be able to grow long maturing crops with more nutrition in them. Uh-oh. Uh now I think this is the last slide. Another consideration is if you can, run your beds east to west. Two reasons for that is twofold. This allows uh, more exposure to the north-south magnetic flux lines. Now, I'm not getting new agey here, <laughs> but there is magnetic flux lines that run underneath the earth. That's why all compasses work and point north, right? Plants pick up on that magnetic energy, and if you can parallel that flux line, you can capture some of that energy. I always tell people, they say, well, how do you be a good farmer? Well, there's no one good thing. You have to do a lot of little things well and then all those little things add up and you can be a 10% better farmer than the next guy because you pay attention to these little details like this. That you can grow stuff north and south. I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying this gives you a little bit of an advantage because you get a little bit more energy into that plant because of the magnetic flux lines, because they're parallel in the magnetic flux lines rather than running perpendicular to it and you capture more of that energy. Uh, the other reason is it bodes well for how the sun arcs through the sky. And you don't have to worry so much about tall plants shading out shorter plants. 
If they run north to south, you might have, a, if a tall plant's here, and remember you're rotating, so you're not going to grow the same thing in the same spot every year. So if you've got a tall, tall plant here and it's morning, well, that tall plant, those pole beans are going to shade out my pepper plants. Well, that's not good. But if I run them east-west, then the sun arc, and especially in the summer, the sun arcs high, and those, those beans never shade out my pepper plants running east-west. Okay? So that's another reason it's better to run things east-west. Okay, container gardeners, I think there was a couple here, patios. This is what I would recommend. You can get these online. You get a whole kit. This is called earth boxes. See this grating? That keeps the soil above the floor there. That's about three inches between the bottom of that and the grating. And this is your water fill tube. And right under here is an overflow valve so that when you put water in here, it'll, it'll never rise above the grating. It'll always spill out the overflow. So you can just water to your heart's content. Never have to worry about overwatering. It'll, you'll never get it above that soil. You put your dirt on top of that, and then you mash down the dirt into these back corners that are open, and that is where your soil contacts your water, and it'll capillarily wick water up from the bottom, which is a lot better way to water than watering from overhead. Wicking, you know, capillary action watering is a lot better. And this, this is designed to give you that capillary action. And, and you never have to worry about, uh, big thing about containers is, either underwatering or overwatering. And this, you never have to, it's always perfectly watered. And so it takes that guesswork out. Huh? You don't have to do any watering up no. Nope, you just put it in that tube. That's all you do. In fact, they have, this is the bottom without the grating. And you can see uh, there's one with the tube. It sort of fits in right there. There's the overflow valve. You know, it spills out. So when you get too much water in, instead of going above the grating, get the whole soil wet, it'll just overflow. It's a really cool system. It's simple. Where do you got you can get them online. I think the guy, I think the guy makes them down in Tampa. Well, the original guy made them in Tampa. He probably sold it. Yeah. I think, I think it's, yeah. And uh, anyways, even big farmers do it because it's really nice to grow your uh, perennials. The big thing with perennials is weeding. weeding. Weeding perennials that stay there year after year. With these, it's a lot easier to weed. They, made a, they make a fitted plastic sheet. I don't know why these aren't on there, but uh, they make a fitted plastic sheet to go over there, go over the top of it. So you don't even have to worry about the weed problem. And here's an example. You ever heard of these guys? The uh, Devares family? Jules, uh, Pathway to Freedom, huh? Yeah, if you, if go, go and Google these guys and watch their video. These guys are making uh, about $45,000 a year growing in a little California, sub, you know, right near Loma Linda. Oh, well, it's, uh, where, where is it? what's that uh, subdivision there? Uh, Pasadena. Um, it's close. It's in the same ballpark. But uh, they're in Pasadena. They got them a, a little fifth of an acre plot with a house on it, so it's not even a fifth of an acre. And they got all these kind of structured raised beds, and they grow $45,000 worth of food there every year, and they eat everything they grow. Because this guy said, I am not going to eat GMO food. I'm not going to feed it to my kids. His kids, these are all his kids. They're, they're, none of these are married people. They're, they're married, off, married into it. This is his son and his two daughters. And they're on that YouTube video. You should watch the video. It's very inspiring. And this guy makes a living, and his kids work the farm with him. And it's just a fifth of it. People say, well, you need a lot of acres. No, these guys, only, all they did is turn their little fifth of an acre plot of a house in the middle of the suburbs into a $45,000 a year garden. He's a Sabbath keeper. I met him. He came to Atlanta one time at a Georgia Organic Seminar and, and put on a presentation. And it turns out he was a, a Sabbath keeper. I was amazed. Yeah, well, that's the end of that. 
Okay. Uh, they do have a website. It's called Pathways to Freedom or something like that. But the YouTube video is good. Um, you can just Google them on YouTube or search for them on YouTube, the Davari's family. Yeah. I have two questions. One, what about mushroom soil? And two, what about using Well, uh, is, this any, is this because I think the, one of those videos that went viral is um, that guy, I forget it. No, he's like mulch, Mr. Mulch. No? No, I have that question too about huh? Back to Eden. That's an, you saw that, right? And I tell you, everybody's asking me about that. That, uh, you haven't seen, that's not. I would think around fig trees and perennials, I would, yeah, well, any perennial. Uh, I would put newspaper and then mulch like that. But when you're doing annuals, uh, that hay, if you put that hay on thick enough, uh, it's an extra step that I don't really think is worth the time and effort. Uh, if I put the hay on thick enough, and I can go about with a one bale of hay, it costs me about four bucks for a bale of hay where I'm at. Um, not hay, it's straw. There's a difference between hay and straw. It's, uh, it's wheat straw. And um, with hay, you got to work, work. It's good. It's nutritious. But uh, it got a lot of weeds in it. And you might give yourself a weed problem. Straw usually doesn't have the weed problem. And... Uh, with straw, I put it on thick enough, and I can go about 10 to 12 feet with a, four, a, a bale of straw. Cost me $4, and uh, it's thick enough to take care of the weeds. And I don't have to sit there and you got to soak the newspaper so it doesn't blow around. It's a good concept if you've got a lot of time. But, you know, the farming I do, I'm trying to make a living at it, and I, I'm not out there putzing around. I'm, I'm like, you know, if it, you're, that's the thing about f small farming for a living. You're having to wait. Is this, is this, okay, this is good. But is it costing me more in time than it's worth? You know, yeah, it's great. But if it costs you too much time, it's not great anymore. So in other words, it would be okay because it would break down and go into the soil. Yeah. Like yeah. That's nothing problem. Most of it's soy-based ink in any, anyway. Just don't use the glossy stuff, they say, because that's got poisons in it. Yeah. So mushroom soil. Mushroom soil uh, <laughs> that's where the mistake I made early on. I bought mushroom soil because it just sounded good. You know, it costs more than any other stuff, so it must be good. And, um, you know, I was a small, so I could afford it. You can't afford it on any kind of large scale. But the problem with mushroom soil, it, mushroom compost, is it's not composted mushrooms. They, they, it's just the dirt mushrooms were grown in. And I don't know what it was before, but it's still pretty good stuff. I mean, it's got a lot of stuff in it, uh, you know, good organic stuff in it. But the alkalinity is, I don't know what they do to that soil. It's sterile soil when they start because you don't want the competing funguses in mushroom dirt. You want just the mushroom to grow. And they, somehow they sterilize it with something that shoots the, uh, shoots the uh, pH way up. It's super alkaline. So I put that all over my garden thinking I was doing a great thing. And it's taken me four years to get that alkalinity down to like seven, it was like eight, which is way high, you know. A seven or 6.5 is where you want to be. And uh, be careful with mushroom compost. Don't put much on because uh, it'll, shoot the, it'll shoot your pH way, 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 way up. Hmm? What do you do to get rid of star thistle? Huh? Star thistle. Star thistle? I don't know. If your plot's small enough, I'm going to get into... What's, what's next? Uh, oh, next one is weed management. We got time? What time do we quit? Well, you want to do 10 minutes of it? Might as well, right? Or, or do you want me? Oh, let me talk about these over here. Let me do that, okay? 
Uh, okay. Let's, let's take this off, and you guys can come. This, like I said, this was free, but I want to I tell you about these things before you take them so you'll know to leave them for people that might need it, and you're not going to need it. Because we don't want this just to end up in some landfill because, you know, a year from now you clear out your house and you never used it, right? Uh. Now, don't take these. The, the ones with the yellow are my... my uh, Original copies, yeah. Were you the one that took those? <laughs> Somebody took those. Like, oh, thanks for bringing those back. I would be sunk without those. Oh, I got it. Okay. Now I called these people up. They sent me their free literature. Like I said, these are small companies, so this was, you know, printing all this stuff out. Uh, you know. Anyway. Um, now. And oh, where's the other one? Oh, here it is. Get rid of that. Okay. Now these I'm going to wait till tomorrow. Uh, these are my lists. You got your bricks chart, right? You're going to buy your refractometer or win the one I got. All right, uh, let's go through this in a hurry. All right, we'll start here at this end. This, these two, I don't know if these are the same. One might be tools, one might be, but this guy is in Kentucky, Joel DeFour. He sells BCSs. That's a big tillers. And he also has some good hand tools that are made in Europe and they're a lot better quality than the stuff at Ace and Home Depot, okay? Joel DeFour for the BCS tillers. He's a great guy who lives in Kentucky. Um, and like I said, I think one of these is just hand tools, and the other one is the BCS. So here's the hand tools, here's the BCS. Berry Hill Irrigation is where I get my drip tape. We haven't gone over irrigation yet, but for drip irrigation, Berry Hill is they make a, uh, for that 5,000 square foot plot. Uh, I went over here to page 11, and they got different kits, and I just bought the Super Garden Kit because it's the size I needed, okay, for my drip irrigation. Um, well, I haven't covered it yet, but uh, just leave it here if you don't think you might need it. But, uh, you know, it's a good, good resource. Drip air. And they're in Virginia, huh? Do they have the rubber one that you can detach and put in any direction? And no, it's just flat drip tape. You saw it in the lines there. It's not the little emitters. PVC tubing. No, it's not PVC. It's a, it's a special tape. It's high, it's, it's high technology, but it's, I'll have to go over that. Uh, but that, that's Berry Hill. That's drip irrigation. Uh, this is CSI, okay. Uh, okay, let me go through the catalogs, then I'll go to the soil testers. I'll leave the soil tester for last. This is Baker Creek. Everybody heard of Baker Creek heirloom seed? Guy lives in Missouri, he's an Adventist guy. Uh, what's his name? Kettle? His name, I forget. Um, he's in here all the time. No, that's just the name where they live. Jer? Uh, Jer Kettle. Jer Gettle or something like that. Yeah, and he's one in Connecticut, too. This guy he was a homeschooled Adventist guy in the, out in the backwoods of Missouri right before the 9-11, uh, not 9-11, right before the year 2000 when all the computers were supposed to crash. He was like an 18-year-old kid, and he put together a seed catalog. Well, he was just in the right time at the right place because everybody was, you know, preparing for the end of the world. 
and he sold out of his little stored seed and it financed him he had to buy more seed and he's grown this into a multi-million dollar company. He's like the biggest heirloom seed supplier ever, you know, in the North American continent. You know, and he started back in the year 2000 as an 18-year-old homeschool guy, just as a, what do they call it, as a little in homeschool industry or whatever? It's back in the woods. Uh, the one in Missouri is, yeah. And they, and, but the problem here is he just, he, he doesn't like organically grown seed. He, he is Mr. Heirloom. He is convinced that heirloom is the only way to go. <sighs> the, okay, heirloom, yeah, that's a good question. Heirloom seed versus hybrid versus open pollinated, all those things. Heirloom is a, a kind of a vague definition. It usually means an old time self-pollinated or open pollinated. Oh, let's, let's talk about open pollinated first. Open pollinated means it can breed itself. It can stay true to type. It's a, it could have been the result of an heirloom hybrid, uh, a hybridization process way long time ago. Okay. But the, the DNA and the genetics stabilized over time and now Sometime before 1945 is kind of the cutoff date. Anything that was stabilized prior to 1945 became known as an heirloom, antique seed, right? It, now, that doesn't mean hybrids are bad. It just means they stay true to type, and they're, they're heirlooms. Now, you can have open pollinated seeds, but they don't get designated as heirlooms because they were hybridized and stabilized, their genetics stabilized after 1945. Open pollinated heirloom or the... What is it? Heirlooms are always open pollinated, but open pollinated are not always heirlooms. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. It's just about 1945. Because why? Because 1945 is when they started kicking in hybridization into high gear, and pretty much that's when hybridization took over. You know, lots of hybrid plants. So 1945 is used as kind of the shifting date for open pollinated is being designated open pollinated, which means staying true to type, or being designated as heirloom, which again means true to type. You can plan on the year after year and get the same thing. The problem is with Mr. Kettle Seed Company and a lot of seed companies is he hasn't got all his bugs worked out. And I'll give you, I don't like to tear people, I'm not trying to tear him down. He's got, you know, there's a lot of good seeds and they're all heirlooms. But sometimes I order one thing and I get something completely different. You know, it's still a tomato, but it's not the tomato I ordered, you know what I mean? So. He farms out his production to other people, and I don't know if their quality control is quite what I would want it. So that's something you have to deal with with seed company. But if, but if heirlooms are important to you and growing stuff that's true to type, this is your man, and this is your seed company. You might have to just live with the occasional mess up and getting the, you know, the weird variety that you didn't order. But by the time you find out it's not what you ordered, it's too late. You know, the season's already gone by, huh? Um, what seed components do you have there that's non Well, now here, these two guys are opposite. These are high mowing. I think they're out in Oregon. I'm not sure. Maybe they're Vermont. I'm not sure. But um, I get them mixed up. Uh, but uh, he's heirloom, and these guys are totally organic. This guy says fooey on organic. These guys say fooey on heirloom. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I don't know where you're at. I grow them. I use them all. You know, um, I, use, uh, I use Baker Creek for some things, huh? Well, every seed's different. There's a, there's a sheet up here. I, I think it's in my thing. I'll give you that gives you the lifespan for seeds. Yeah. And, you know, you'd want to throw them out after that because you don't want to plant something and have it wait there and wait and not come up. And then you lose your window to plant it, you know. 
So I just, I go ahead and throw out the old seeds. But these guys are totally organic. Nothing, they, all these seeds are produced under organic methods. That might be a good thing too. And I've had good luck with these. They usually send me what they say they're going to send me. The two problems with seed companies is either they don't, they don't have their quality control worked out. They should have the germination rate on the seed packet. Baker Creek doesn't. I told them they need to start doing that if they want to be really call themselves a professional seed company. You know, they need to have the germination rate on there. And, uh, and the two things that they, you, you do, they don't deliver what they say they're going to, you know, what you order. Or... Uh, they don't let you know when something runs out. You know, you're sitting there waiting on a certain variety and you're saying, well, did I order this? They say, yeah, it's coming. Yeah, yeah, it's coming. And it never shows up. And you're like, well, I need to know if it's canceled so I can order something else. You know, because you invest money in these seeds. I mean, I invest, you know, I spend for a 5,000 square foot plot, I spend about $800 on seeds. So, you know, I, if it's not coming, I need to know it's not coming so I can go to plan B. If you keep me hanging on a line saying, oh, yeah, it's going to be there, and then at the last minute say, oh, guess what? It's been canceled. Well, now where am I at? I, I've lost my window to plant that. And seed companies do that to you a lot, you know. Um, but these guys don't. The only thing I have with Baker Creek is they don't always give me what I think they're going to give me. Uh, Johnny's is probably my creme de la creme. Uh, they've... They, are, they, they send you what they say they're going to send you. They don't have a huge variety, but the varieties they give you work. Uh, sometimes with Baker Creek, you get all these weird varieties, and some of them just don't work very well, you know. Uh, Johnny's has a pretty good quality control. And not only that, they're super helpful on the phone. And they sell tools in the back, and these are good tools. And if you have a problem with them, they'll take them back, or they'll show you how to fix them. I mean, they're, they stand behind their products really good, and their seeds are always good quality, and uh, they deliver what they say they're going to deliver, and if they run out of something, they'll call you up and say, we've canceled that. We just wanted to let you know, and that's really nice. Mostly companies are, don't have, yeah. Canada. Oh, okay. Caymans might work, yeah. Yeah, um, this is peaceful. Okay, I got two Johnnies here. And that's the three seed companies I got. High mowing. I did do, I thought I had Territorial. That's another seed company I use. Territorial, you can get their free catalog. Um, but uh, this is the other seed company, and they do have tools in the back. They're in California called Peaceful Valley. I don't know where in California that is, but anyways. Uh, the reason I like these, and I specifically like this fall, I told them to send me their old catalog because they don't have, they send out a lot of catalogs and they don't have it in all of them. But if you go here, talking about cover crops, we haven't covered that yet, but when you go to co the cover crop page, these guys really excel in uh, cover crops. Well, cover crop is a sacrificial crop that you grow in, all through the winter. And I hope this one had it. I thought I got the one that had it. Yep. Yeah, Florida, they usually take the summers off. But anyways, they have a table in here with all the cover crops. Well, doggone it, this doesn't have it. But anyways, call them up and say you want the cover crop <laughs> issue. Um, okay, that's Peaceful Valley. They're good for cover crops. And the reason I like them for cover crops is because Johnny sells cover crops, but you've got to buy like a... 25 pound bag minimum. Well, I don't need 25 pounds of barley grass or whatever I'm growing, right? 
high, uh, uh, Peaceful Valley, you can buy a one pound ba bag. You know, they'll sell you in small quantities, which I really like. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.